4: Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident Hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm and welcoming atmosphere and You can get that from this podcast too in fact An exceptional experience awaits at The Resident city centre locations And from this Whitehall Sources podcast Which starts now
0: You just referred to Ireland Bryson using the word "her." Does that mean you do, in fact, think Don't she think is a woman?
1: Anything into I, I am trying to you rationally to
0: individual. look. You started I, I'm, her. What I'm
2: trying to do, I you I, I can't remember. I'll it take your word for it. it, it. Sounds well, like
4: well, fine. A Hello and welcome to Whitehall sources. I'm Callum Macdonald. Also here, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning. And also here, Frankie Leach, the former First Minister of Scotland.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. Uh,
4: So this is interesting. You're actually a former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn, which is why why we got you on the podcast. But it turns out you've got far more serious credentials than that.
3: Yes. You've actually been in leadership. The first female minister, or is it the first First female First Minister of Scotland. (sighs) Thank you to The National for reporting on my my new promotion. So, t-
4: what happened? Tell us what, this was when you were foraying into the dark side of television. What last night?
3: <laughs> yeah. When I was cheating on you guys. Yeah. Um, no. So basically Politico usually does their roundup, right? On playbook where they say, and this person's doing this tonight. And I was on the Jeremy Kyle show. Well, not the Jeremy Kyle show, Jeremy Kyle live. It's um, yes, not which the, which the Jeremy like, Kyle
4: show. No yeah, live no, detectors. Def-
3: definitely on this not that. Um, doing a reaction to alex Salmond, who was being interviewed first on the show politico um accidentally put in their roundup of who was on they kind of merged the two together and said you know former first minister of scotland francis leach and i didn't notice at first but loads of people were texting me like congratulations (laughs) ha ha! i was like i don't understand what's going on here anyway um, they obviously had made me a mea culpa. All fine. I got to the talk TV studio mm. and there was Alex Summoned and said, you know, congratulations on your promotion, former first minister. And Is that what like, he said to you? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, all oh, right, because I realized what happened on the way oh, there. My word. Um yeah so it was very interesting he did a interesting interview about like the state of Scotland where he thinks Nicola Sturgeon is at and then obviously was talking about the rolling issue of the uh, bill that wasn't a able to take royal ascension. Yeah, that's yeah.
4: The one. So there's something we'll be talking about lots on today's podcast, actually. In the next few minutes, you'll hear from Alex Bell, who was an advisor in the Scottish government to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister, uh, among other things, now a columnist for The Times, etc. He's really interesting, actually, on where Nicola Sturgeon now stands, given the difficulties that she's faced with the gender reform bill, trying to defend it to the public, to her own party... I think arguably to herself as well, if, without wishing to sort of read too deeply into things. Uh, but Alex Bell coming up on the podcast in the next few minutes. That's what you've got today. Um, hello to those of you who have joined our mailing list since we last spoke last week. Let me say hello to some of you, uh, including Ian McDonald. Hello. Uh, Dan B, who has signed up to the mailing list. Uh, Melanie Chilman. Hello, Melanie. Ruri Hipkin also joining up. Thank you, Ruri. Janet's on there. Hi, Janet. And Helen Spreadborough joins us too. Hello, Helen. Thank you for joining the mailing list. Just some of you who are brilliant and clever and excellent. To join the Whitehall Sources mailing list, go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. We promise never to spam. Whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. It's good to be building up um, all of our lovely Whitehall Sources friends. That's you. So make sure you're part of it. Whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Also coming up on today's podcast, a bit of reflection on President Zelensky's visit to the UK. We'll do that a bit later on. I would actually just like to start with foreign dignitary stories. I imagine both of you have met some foreign dignitaries. I'm going to say it now, probably not on a par with President Zelensky during wartime. Um, just, you know, how are you ever going to beat that? Who wants to go for Kirsty, who have you met?
2: Uh, I've 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 met a few in my time <laughs> and uh, sadly I never met Barack Obama who mm. I probably would most like to have met. Um I did meet Bill Clinton. Can I just come close on the Zelensky topping? Um Bill Clinton was the only leader I've ever met that made Grown men in Her Majesty's lobby uh, giggle like tiny really? girls because uh, they were so impressed by him. I thought meh myself, but um, <laughs> uh, you know. And he spoke. Uh, I think it was the conference uh, just to portray how long I've been in politics. So it was back in the day. The conferences were still in Blackpool, um, and he'd gone out the night before with Blair or something and got a dirty burger. Classic. Um, uh, and he. Uh, and I'd heard a lot about what a charismatic speaker he was. Uh, and actually, I think all he does is he speaks slightly of voce so that everyone has to kind of lean forward in their seat um, to, uh, to hear him. So it all looks like everyone's all like a gog on their seat. Um, but I just, a uh, funny thought occurred to me about uh, Justin Trudeau. Oh, yeah. So uh, we obviously, at number 10, we had a lot of foreign dignitaries uh, come to meet the Prime Minister. We had a a Commonwealth summit meeting and we had a few uh, heads of state in. Um, And the Prime Minister was out in the garden. My press room, the SPADS press room, overlooks the, the garden at number 10. And the Prime Minister was sat out in the patio of the garden facing towards my office. And she looked up to see this great big like, sea of faces of young women from the press office with all their faces pressed up against the window, which is very unusual, not least because they're bomb curts. You're not supposed to, like, peer out from the other side of them. And she said to me, she said, what was was all the interest? Why were so many people peering out at the the meeting? And I said, well, I said, I think... uh, I think, I think Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's quite the thing with the um, <laughs> with the with the women in the press office. as she went, "Really?" And I said, "Well, okay, it's not for everyone, but but can I just, if you will indulge me?" Always, we're here to indulge you. Thank you for indulging me. Just to belay the myth that everything that we did during my term at Number Ten was miserable, kind of Brexit baiting stuff. <laughs> This is one of my favourite ever stories, and it was about some heads of state coming to visit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was written up by the brilliant Tim Shipman uh, in a a little known paper called The Sunday Times. Um, And it's one of my favourite... I briefed this, obviously. It's one of my favourite stories ever. So uh, I'll just read you a little bit of it. When you are hosting an international summit, there are plenty of pitfalls, protocol problems, grandstanding foreign leaders, and the ever-present security threats. As Theresa May led the Commonwealth Conference last week, she was warned that the most immediate danger came not from terrorists, but a psychotic, broody duck. (laughs) The Prime Minister received a... This is all true, by the way. The Prime Minister received a formal briefing about the dangers of approaching the feathered fiend who is nestling (laughs) in the garden of Number 10. The Anatine aggressor dubbed Duckula by Downing Street staff, that was my name, thank you you very much, (laughs) uh, has taken up residence in a window box outside the cabinet room while she sits on her eggs. Mrs May was warned (laughs) by her chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, and another aide that the brown bird, highly protective of her unborn ducklings, might attack if anyone got too close to the nest. Ducks can be extremely aggressive when their eggs are about to hatch, and Aid explained they may go a bit quackers. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what came over me. No, no, no. So when May hosted the leaders of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand on Wednesday, the visitors Justin Trudeau, Malcolm Tucker, Turnbull, Malcolm Malcolm Tucker, Tucker. (laughs) sorry Freudian slip there, Malcolm Turnbull, (laughs) and Jacinda Arden, uh, who, like duckular is expecting her first child in June, uh, got the same security briefing about the Mallard. They all had to be briefed to stay away. An aide told May, it's a hot day. If you're lucky, Prime Minister, the duck will go to the pond.
4: <laughs> so you had to... There was a briefing to the leaders of actual countries to stay away from a duck that might go for them cold Dacula. Yes, I mean, what's not to love, right? <laughs> and this, everyone, is how government works. <laughs> uh, uh, right, come on, Frankie. For- foreign dignitaries. Who have you got?
3: Well, um, the president of Cuba, Miguel um, Diaz Canese, I think his name is, came over in 2018, which was good fun. Had some nice chats is with he his a bodyguards. Um, I mean, there is only one party in Cuba, which is the mm. Communist Party. So I would assume so. Was he a friend um, unless, of Jeremy's? Um, I d- I don't know if they were friends. I mean, it was a it was a proper political dignitary visit. I know you're trying to debate me, but it was an a, it was an official visit. Callum. he was visiting everybody. Um, <laughs> but I don't remember him visiting the prime minister. To be fair, no, well, true. who who would? Anyway, um, he Ducky. came over and that was that was good fun but also nancy pelosi as well and she'd come over because it was at the time when everything was going wrong with the northern ireland protocol so i think part of her kind of delegation yeah because of you guys hey (laughs) no um she'd come over i think to kind of support as the country was tearing itself apart over brexit so she came and had this very high level meeting in in the boardroom of the leader of the opposition's office and she presented us with a ceremonial plate, and I say us it, it was it was for the office, it was a very nice looking plate. Um, but I never really thought much more of it until about a year later, after we'd lost the election, um you have to kind of unceremoniously pack your bags quite quickly mm. from the office. And we were going through all the books and things and packaging stuff up. We were looking about what to chuck, what to keep. Various sentimental items would, you know, pop up and you'd have a nice chat with your colleague about what that moment meant at that time of the leadership. And I came across the plate and I think it was like a Sainsbury's bag or something just (laughs) somewhere in the office. And for ages, I was like, where is this plate come from? It's like a White House plate. Um, And then I remembered it was from the, the visit from Nancy Pelosi. And I took it to the back office where Jeremy was and I was like, what do you want me to do with this plate? And he was like, "Oh, I don't know. Do you do you want it?" And I was like, "What do I want, Nancy Pelosi's plate?" I guess so. Um, so the moral of the story is that somewhere in my house is a is a plate from Nancy Pelosi. That's pretty cool. In a cool. plate, pla- Yes, it's still on <laughs> no, the bag. No, it's it's kind of in a it's in a cupboard somewhere. I've got a display cupboard of pottery. Maybe I could put it in there as a. I'll take it out at parties, put some crumpets
4: on it. It's a good talking point. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. A plate from Nancy Pelosi.
2: (laughs) You can call it the Pelosi plate. Yeah, (laughs) the Pelosi plate. Put some pies on
4: it. (laughs) Foreign dignitaries. We'll talk about uh, President Zelensky's visit a little bit later on on Whitehall Sources, but these are who you're listening to, people who have who have done this, who have lived it, who have breathed it. Thank you for finding us. Please make sure you follow the podcast or subscribe to the podcast, depending on where you're listening. And you can email your thoughts as you listen. Uh, hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address. And to join our very exclusive mailing list, it's just for you, actually, go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Let us begin by talking about the potential downfall of Nicola Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon has once again had quite a tough week owing to the aftermath of the gender reform bill and confusion about what it means, the implications of it, and the policy that's been made. Of course, the UK government has promised to block it, it will not get royal assent at this point, which tees up a constitutional question. But personally, for Nicola Sturgeon, as leader of the SNP and as First Minister, questions remain about her handling of the policy, the execution of the policy, and what happens next. Let's welcome to Whitehall Sources a special guest, Alex Bell, who, in his own words, is...
0: Times columnist, long career in journalism in uh, Scotland and abroad, but of relevance particularly, I was also head of policy to the SNP in 98 and 99, which is the lead up to the first devolved election. And again, Alex Salmond asked me in for the period 2010 to 2013, where I was uh, head of policy uh, in the Scottish government at the time.
4: Can I just get your overall, your broad assessment then? First of all, on how things stand for Nicola Sturgeon as we speak to you today, is this heading for the end of the days of Nicola Sturgeon as first minister?
0: It is exceptionally bad. I think this goes without precedent in Nicola Sturgeon's time as a first minister or minister. She seems to have lost her grip on the sort of national pulse. She's championed a cause which has been uh, resisted both nationally in terms of the opinion polls don't think it's a great idea and there are many uh, opponents who don't think it's a great idea and this is of the Gender Recognition Bill. Uh, We have to keep referring to it to a bill because obviously its royal assent has been blocked so it hasn't become an act yet. Let's leave aside whether the the bill itself is right or wrong. It's that she seems to have bullied her party along a path they did not want to go. And so for the first time ever, we saw SNP frontbench MSPs actually refusing to vote with the government. And that was astonishing in itself. I know that in itself sounds astonishing. Yeah. How can you possibly have a government for as long as Nicola Sturgeon has without anyone rebelling? Well, there you go you can. So this was the first instance when people have decided to rebel. Then uh, in steps the UK government and says, look, you may have passed it in your parliament, but we think it intrudes on rights across the UK and therefore is not permissible under the devolved legislation. And that is shaping into looking like being a great old constitutional uh, boxing match, Everyone gets very excited in the nationalist community that this is an outrage that London has resisted them. But within days, the whole policy falls apart uh, simply because exactly what opponents of the legislation have been arguing all along uh, was that you can't simply have a man declaring himself a woman and that being fait accompli and the case which has brought this about, uh, which has highlighted that, is that of a male rapist who transitioned after being charged with two rape offences in declaring himself a woman was then put into a woman's jail. And that caused outrage. And uh, the thing about this is, is that there's just no natural sympathy for the legislation in Scotland. None of the polling shows that people think this is a good idea. None of the polling shows that it it, it wants the SMP to be a sort of champion of particularly vogue and, and pressing issues such as this. And in this sense, Nicola Sturgeon appears to have distanced herself from her own grassroots, from her own party, and looks incredibly isolated. Is this the end of Nicola? Well, you know, um, that's hard to say for a couple of reasons. Who would take over uh, because the entire leadership team are all wedded to the same policy, so i don 't see that would make a particular difference, and much as the p may now be slowly limbering up into what looks like a rebellion uh, you wouldn 't recognize it as such from a Westminster perspective it looks more like people getting a bit angry. At a coffee morning, it's still all very subdued and, and it's really no much more than the usual suspects. So I do accept other people are coming out, but they're not doing it in a sort of bullish, firm way. Mm. The answer for that is that this is a party which has kind of lost its ability to... rebel within the ranks. Uh, So convinced is it that it's just a one more push and it'll get what it wants that everyone has been sort of cowed into a kind of quasi-military discipline uh, 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 and so they don't break ranks.
4: Based on your proximity to Salmond and Sturgeon and the well-advertised close relationship that they had um, in politics, if you can identify what a difference between the days when you were there and the way Nicola Sturgeon is now running the party?
0: Well, uh, <laughs> to be blunt, Alex Hammond saw policy as a tactical thing. You adopted things which were popular at the time, championed them through, and then in so doing, you advanced the popularity of your movement and party. I think Nicholas Sturgeon, in a much more worthy way, but takes policy seriously – She uh, cares about what is delivered on the ground. Uh, She was, if you like, seduced into the SNP by Alex Salmond's appeal to the left wing in Scotland. Now, whilst Alex Salmond was appealing to the left wing and the right wing consistently throughout his political career, whether right or wrong, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon was very much inducted on the idea that independence would deliver a fairer, more just Scotland, that there was money that could be spent on things like NHS and social policy, which didn't exist somehow within the union. Now, what's important about this is that after the first referendum, uh, Nittler, I think, began to see, well, actually, there was really no great pot of money that was going to miraculously appear and indeed put that to the test. So she asked the party to set up a commission which would look into – called the Growth Commission, which would look into the, you know, the finances of independence. And in fact, they remain as gray and as vague as they've ever done. But I think she has come to the realisation that there is no kind of – there's going to be no lottery payoff. And and therefore, I think has pivoted in the course of her time as a leader to think, well, maybe we do have to take these individual bits of policy seriously to build the better Scotland through policy uh, because it seems impossible to get round to a second referendum. So I think think she's sincere on this bill. I think she's sincere when she does adopt – if you like social stances, uh, liberal stances on policy, but but I think she's endlessly undermined by the fact that she leads a party which which just isn't strong on policy. People don't sign up to the SNP in order to transform whatever it may be, the NHS or education. Primarily, they sign up because they want independence. It's not to say they aren't sincere when they look at these other things, but it's not their forte. And secondly, when, when pressed to do big things, they are inclined to go for the least contentious option. And I think that's resulted in why you look across the policy board in Scotland now, and fair enough in England too. I'm not in any way sort of saying there's something unique to this. But when you look across the state of NHS, and of education and of any number of things. And they just all seem to be kind of in disarray because no one has taken a firm hand and say, we are going to do this. Uh, because if any minister should come into cabinet and say, I am going to do this, and the opinion round the table is that that might damage the independence cause, then that doesn't happen. Uh, and, and so they're in that, that, that bind. But that's the difference for Nicola. Absolutely sincere on a kind of socially better Scotland. Absolutely sincere behind independence, but flummoxed by the fact that A, the promise of more money and a better Scotland is much harder to achieve than she thinks, and B, she can't progress on the independence. So she's kind of stuck in a hole.
4: That's really interesting. So stuck in a hole. Alex Salmon's warning this week was that this gender reform bill um is really doing huge damage. So he was kind of re- reflecting on polling that suggested that support for independence, support for Nicola Sturgeon, has dropped in the aftermath of the um, of the bill, and actually a majority of people support Westminster blocking the bill. Uh, as you say, it didn't have popular support in the first place. Do you agree with Alex Salmond that the damage that is being done now is undoing the work of years of campaigning on the part of the SNP?
0: Well, I'll say this cautiously because uh, Alex Salmond is... Uh... <laughs> Got some very good lawyers. But um, the way he phrased this point, he he made it at a Burns Night Supper in Dundee, I believe, at mm. uh, the thrust of his argument. He did he did seem to suggest at one point that, that there was something that this policy had come from elsewhere, as as if uh, in, in coded language this wasn't natural Scottish policy, which which I found odd and and and, and maybe is the subject of a different discussion. But to his point. I think that, that actually the nation is quite willing to accept, Nicola, you just went too far. Clearly common sense says that this rapist should be in a man's jail uh, and therefore can we just roll back on this? You know, you've overstepped it. But what's damaging Nicola is that she's dug herself in this is now a point of principle to her. And she's very vociferous, I would say arrogantly so. She's using very strong language against people who disagree with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're the homophobic, transphobic, even racist, she said at one point. And, and is that really the language of a first minister trying to build unity? I don't think so. I think from Salmond's point of view, well, this is uh, this is the gift that he's been waiting for ever since setting up his rival independence party, Alipa, uh, in that they haven't really had a lever in which to pry away at the unity of the SNP. And this has come along. And, and Salmond with his natural eye for an opportunity has leapt upon that. But, but, but I go back to the sense that I think if you ask Scotland, I mean, you know, I, this is my instinct on this. If you ask Scotland, if, if, if in Scotland right now someone just said, you're right, let's just have a pause on this, let's just rethink it, then I don't think it would do any particular damage to anyone. You do I have to say bear in mind that MSPs from other parties voted for the bill uh they too have suddenly gone remarkably silent and 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 disowned their previous actions but we go back to this thing it's just exceptional for her to be so To to choose her political path so badly, to lose so many friends. Because, of, of course, at the same time, she's pressing the de facto referendum idea, where she's now said that this is open to the party. This is the idea that whether it's a Westminster election or an Edinburgh election, that if there was overwhelming support, Ill-defined, I have to say, uh, for the SNP, then that would amount to, you know, essentially a referendum victory. Now that's already caused for the first time ructions in the party. There was a change of leadership in Westminster, basically because MPs are thinking, "Hey, I'm going to lose my job if we argue on this," and also much disquiet elsewhere in the party. Now you have to bear in mind with the SNP, well, the, the current model if you like, the salmon, swinny, sturgeon model of the s p that has operated over the last 30 years is that it never gets too hooked up on a policy beyond independence, is that it's just trying to seek a, a sort of wide cross uh, level of support and that it's much stronger on campaigning than it is on detail and what you're seeing, I think, is just the end of that entire model. Mm. So I do think this is perhaps, having cautioned myself off this, I'm prepared to say that maybe Nicola Sturgeon is seeing this is the, the beginning of the end. But that's because I think it's the beginning of an end of, of an independence movement, which just can't quite nail down either what it wants or how to get it.
4: Alex, it is so interesting speaking to you. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate that.
0: Not at all lovely to speak to you, and cheerio.
4: (laughs) Alex Bell, formerly of the SNP, let's pick up a couple of the things that you said, Kirsty and Frankie. One, I think, Kirsty, to put to you, is on the idea of uh, a party that has lost its ability to rebel in the ranks. That's something that Alex said there. What do you make of that as as a concept, that there's almost this kind of, we're flummoxed, we don't know what to do in terms of rebellion?
2: It's for now. I think it depends how long this goes on and how much she continues to dig in on this. You know, when you're in a hole, it's really best to stop digging. But I 100% agree with Alex. She's not. And it has shades for me of Boris Johnson, that transactional relationship with the party. You know, you're in there because you're a winner and because you have the human touch if you lose the human touch and your popularity begins to infect your party's popularity, how long will they put up with this? We started the year with you, Callum, saying that you thought it might be the swan song year for Nicola Sturgeon. Look, of all the things that I thought would bring Nicola Sturgeon down, a a man in a pink puffer jacket was, was not it. But, you know, if she carries on like this, it does feel like it has the potential to be the beginning of the end for her.
4: Frankie, on the on the digging in point, can you strategize around that a bit for us? Because that was that was a real thrust from what Alex was saying, that she has dug herself in and that's what's causing a problem. Actually, if there was a bit of a rewind and a rethink, he reckons that actually wouldn't be all that damaging. It'd be a bit of a right, okay, well let's just let's reset this.
3: Yeah. Nicola Sturgeon clearly has a bit of a PR problem now, in terms of her own party. We mentioned this the last time we spoke about Nicola Sturgeon, which was that You know, her party doesn't really have the guts to get rid of her. If she's going to go, it's going to be on her own terms and it's going to be that kind of self-chopping of your own head. I think as a wider point in politics, I think I haven't seen any polling of the Scottish public, but I wouldn't think it's actually that much of a big deal when it comes to ordinary voters. I think this is a classic case of, I suppose we could call this a Hollywood bubble Problem Rather than a Westminster bubble problem, which is that she's losing popularity with, you know, the media and her colleagues and then people who are kind of in the periphery. And it will be interesting to see whether she buckles under that pressure of a very small select group of people, i.e. her own party, or whether she kind of tries to ride this out and you know it bolsters herself with the popularity that she still has generally with the scottish people Mm. i do think it looks like this is becoming like the beginning of the end for her but i suppose if i was thinking about how to advise my way out of this problem i would want to know is this issue actually affecting how people think about me across Scotland? Because if you take it outside of Hollywood and take it outside of the bubble and you start to hear that more generally people in the SNP are very unhappy with Nicola Sturgeon and they want her gone, then that's a problem. If it's just about her reputation within a small group of people, then I think that can be fixed.
4: Yeah. Uh, one other thought, just from what Alex was saying, Kirsty, for you is on on policy. It was quite interesting, wasn't it? He said uh, Alex Salmon saw policy as a tactical thing, that he would adopt policy that he knew was popular and go for it at the time. Is that just politics, or is that strategically quite clever and certainly in contrast to what Nicola Sturgeon appears to be doing now?
2: Look, it's the, it's the age-old dilemma, isn't it? Do you want, you know, pragmatic politicians, shall we say, or, you know, do you want principled politicians there are merits and problems with both is the is the honest answer to it i once said to cameron i probably said it in a politer way than this but in terms i said you know what is it that you believe in how you know you're not an ideologue how do you consider yourself and he said look i consider myself to be a principled pragmatist don't knock that in politics you've got you know if you're a reed in politics you need to be able to bend with the winds if you don't, you'll snap. You know. You think about people like Thatcher, for argument's sake. Ultimately, it was her convictions, her ideology, that did for her. This is a peculiar hill on which she will. She may die, and she's got herself in a right pickle with it. I listened to a interview with her the other day, and a very polite but very insistent interviewer kept on saying, "You know, when is a trans woman not a woman?" Mm. And she said. When she's committed a crime, well, is that all crimes, or just the really appalling ones? You know, if I was a trans woman that was being jailed for non-payment of my licence fee, would I, <laughs> would I end up in a male prison? I mean, it, it's a, it's an extraordinary mess she's got herself into. Uh, who wouldn't applaud the you know the desire to treat everyone with respect and equality and to create a tolerant, respectful society? But. Look, on this one, you know, she got herself into a pickle. She works on the assumption that everyone treats the law in the same respectful way that she does. Andy Graham, a.k.a. Isla Bryson, is a scumbag and a chancer who twisted the law for his own ends. And... She's just got to throw her hands up on this one and say, I made a mistake before it just bleeds out into the entire party.
4: Mm. I'm going to add as well just some thoughts that I'm nicking from uh, Professor James Mitchell, um, who is always worth reading on such things. Um, He is Professor of Public Policy at Edinburgh University, and he was sort of drawing out some thoughts on Nicola Sturgeon as a political campaigner. versus being a a leader, a first minister, uh, etc. Which, by the way, is an interesting theme, campaigning versus leading, something we've touched on before. But he was basically saying that she is, you know, the most effective campaigner in, in politics, probably in the UK, definitely in Scotland, but probably in the UK, and actually switching up that campaign sort of rhetoric and those very clear promises where campaigning is about them and us and here's how we are different and here's why they are wrong... Actually, leading is far more complex than that. And while there there is a bit of crossover from campaigning skills, um, for example, Nicola Sturgeon during pandemic uh, press conferences where there was a very clear, this is what we're doing. I suppose that them and us was almost COVID (laughs) versus us. And so there was a a kind of enemy to campaign against in that way. But actually, um, when it comes to leading, she's just kind of lost direction.
2: Well, it's the same as, uh, I mean, again, it has parallels with Boris Johnson, doesn't it? I mean, all the things that made Boris Johnson so charismatic uh, and popular with the public make him ill-suited for the day-to-day rigours of office. Uh, his former senior aide, Don Cummings, used to refer to him as the shopping trolley because he'd, like, go in one direction and veer off in another, you know. Theresa May was a, you know, a diligent, hard-working full of integrity, decent woman who worked incredibly hard in the post of the Prime Minister, really knew her brief, was across everything. Even the most ardent supporters of Theresa May would say that, you know, 2017 election campaign was not a high watermark. <laughs> so Gordon Brown was a, was a great details man and a terrible Prime Minister because he just doesn't have that kind of people alchemy, that magic touch that people respond to.
3: I think it's interesting, though, when we talk about Scottish politics, because we're in a new era, aren't we? Which is these kind of iconic figures are all circling, you know, from the SNP and from the independence movement. But not too long ago, you do have those iconic Scottish figures like someone like Gordon Brown, who's chosen in his elder statesman role, you know, to live in Scotland. I've personally been really impressed with the kind of projects that Gordon Brown has gone off and done, particularly around access to vaccines he's done a huge amount of work with um the world health organization so i think it's interesting when we look at the people who tend to do well in number 10 or these political roles with these kind of personality i guess that's their thing isn't it you know they're interesting they're funny they're quirky and then when they come out of being that statesman. They go off and do kind of, you know, very expensive speeches and don't really do much. Whereas someone like Gordon Brown has, I think, gone on to have a really positive role on public policy and global policy as well, particularly when it comes to healthcare. So I wonder if Nicola Sturgeon maybe is going to follow in that tradition of being someone who clearly, I think, has a lot of integrity it's very intelligent. And maybe it's now the time to go and go off and do something like Gordon Brown is doing and having a positive impact on society, but accepting that maybe your time is up in the SNP.
4: And I wonder if that comes to the key point always of governing, um, which is always bubbling on Whitehall sources, which is about delivery, that actually delivering things in government is really quite difficult. It's difficult to get things done. And Nicola Sturgeon's delivery record is pretty poor, actually, in Scotland.
2: It's very poor. The only times I can think it comes close to working is if you have a union of opposites, if you like. So you have Tony Blair and Gordon Brown as your Chancellor. You have uh, David Cameron and you have George Osborne as your Chancellor. So in effect you have a de facto domestic Prime Minister, if you like, doing all the detail, the slog, the policy-driven heavy delivery stuff. While your Blair or your David Cameron does the, you know, the human connectivity, the relationship building, not just uh, in the UK, but across the world. Because, you know, it's different strokes for different folks, right? And there's lots of, look, there's lots of different leadership styles. But primarily, when you're at that stage, politics is about personalities and goodwill. You know, you've got to go onto a global stage and form real decent, lasting friendships with people. I don't know if you're watching the um, the Putin documentary at the moment, but it it's a fascinating uh, look at how different leaders have tried to get to grips with Putin and whether they've kind of tried to win him over and charm him or freeze him out and what have you. It's about relationship building, but that only works. You're that kind of charismatic figure. You've got to have a policy heavy lifter in the treasury. Otherwise, you know, you're gonna come a, a cropper pretty quickly.
4: Whitehall Sources continues in the next few minutes as we consider President Zelensky's visit to the UK. Also before the end of this week's episode, how to deal with big personalities and big characters in your political party, inspired, of course, by the new Deputy Conservative Chairman, Lee Anderson. Stay with us. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked. Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The Resident Hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver, as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going the staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall Sources possible.
3: I'm just thinking as well about that kind of international statesman, and I think we have to talk about Zelensky and his speech yesterday, because watching... The coverage from that. And there was a particular moment as well where a BBC journalist stands up in a press conference and she says, Oh, you know, President Zelensky, I I just want to give you a hug. And he says, Well, why not? And he walks down from the podium and gives her a hug. And it really just reminded me of that kind of Obama way of being, which is like, man of the people international darling and I think listening to him speak it is interesting to see how as a political journey you know if you take away obviously the war which I know is a huge part of the journey that's an incredible pathway that Zelensky has taken from being an actor to now being what I think is one of the most effective politicians in the world in terms of you know bridging those international gaps and it was interesting he's got this quite good relationship with Rishi Sunak but People say that, you know, when Zelensky saw Boris Johnson yesterday in the crowd, he immediately walked over to him and gave him a big hug. And clearly they've got quite a good friendship going on. So it's interesting to see those kind of international political dynamics playing out when you've got Boris Johnson, who is the complete opposite of someone like Rishi Sunak, and yet seems to have got this very powerful kind of alliance, I think, now with Zelensky as a backbencher, which is curious.
0: Yeah,
2: Well, I mean, uh, uh, hats off to to Boris Johnson on on this one. I sound like one of his aides going, he got the big stuff right. Um, (laughs) Where's Oscar? Is Is Oscar here? Oscar? (laughs) He's got the big goals (laughs) right. Uh, But look, on this, he was 100% right. He came out hard, firm and fast in support of Ukraine um, when uh, the EU did its kind of classic sclerotic... Arguing about what they should send and when they should send, and should they have sanctions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's easy for Boris Johnson now to stand there and say, you know, they need a hundred Challenger tanks and a hundred Typhoon fighters. I'm not entirely sure we've got a hundred yeah, Typhoon fighters uh, in our armed forces left anymore. But, but you know, so these are easy kind of wins for him to make. But what is important for uh, Britain's relationship? With Ukraine, is that it it hasn't altered through a change of prime minister, and that Rishi Sunak's support. And protection for Ukraine is every bit as strong as as Boris Johnson's. And kind of hats off to Number 10 for pulling off not one but two surprises this week. I mean, I was in a government that was leaky than a room full of colanders. So (laughs) I'm always full of admiration for a Number 10 that can can pull off a surprise. Once in a while, an exceptional politician comes along, right? Whether they're forged out of the circumstances or that's just innate in who they are. Obama was an exceptional politician. It doesn't matter what your politics was. He's an introvert leader. He wasn't loud. He wasn't brash. He wasn't showy. He was quiet thoughtful, detailed, orientated, but incredibly charismatic at the same time and, you know, had exceptional integrity. Once in a while they come along and he was one and I think Zelensky is
4: another. The mention of Boris Johnson actually brings us neatly on to something else we want to talk about. Um, let's talk about characters within a political party and managing them. Boris Johnson is definitely one such person, who we've considered already, lurking on the back benches, getting a £2.4 million advance on speeches he's not actually given yet um some may suggest you know to get value for money he's going to have to give 2.4 million speeches but there we are uh make of that what you will i just think characters in a political party is interesting Kirsty, you've highlighted on the podcast before the number of ministers well over a hundred former ministers that sit on the back benches for the conservatives that's something there are now three former prime ministers on the back benches as well which is uh in there too and now we have lee anderson entering stage right uh just a little a little nod to um, our friends at Political Playbook for what I'm about to read, because uh, this is from their morning email on Thursday the 9th of Feb. Um, as ever, it's brilliant. So stand by. Lee Anderson has kicked off his stint as Tory deputy chairman by calling for the return of the death penalty. He tells The Spectator's James Heal it has a 100% success rate because, quote, nobody has ever committed a crime after being executed. I'm sorry. He's right. True facts. Yeah, I'm not here to disagree with that, you know. He adds, I don't I don't want to pay for these people. Uh, elsewhere on Lee Anderson, Anderson says after being named the most hated man in Britain by the Mirror, quote, I immediately rang my parents to thank them for all their support. Uh, on small boat arrivals, he adds, they're seeing a country where the streets are paved with gold, where once you land... They're not in that manky, little, effing, scruffy tent. He argues he can say what he wants about poverty, quote, because I was a single parent for 17 years with two boys. I struggled. I know what it's like to put your last fiver in the gas meter. Um, uh, Number 10 is worth saying, uh, this from Politico as well, was at pains on Wednesday to point out that due to not having a ministerial post, he is, quote, not a member of the government. He has been appointed Deputy Conservative Party Chairman. He is a character. One part of me is a, so aware that on this podcast before I've complained about politicians not being willing to say things and not being willing to be clear and honest and just and, and actually say give information give a thought and then part of me realizes Lee Anderson is possibly the reason why that happens. <laughs> Kirsty. <laughs>
2: Uh, so, oh, gosh, so many points to make on this. Where to start? So, first of all, hats off to The Spectator, to be fair, not yeah. Politico. This is an interview That's that The Spectator true. did with them. I bet they couldn't believe their luck when he was appointed vice chairman of the Conservative Party. This was a interview they did before that appointment, just presumably because they thought it would be good value for money, and, by gosh, were they <laughs> right Uh, uh, I think in a hostage-to-fortune point, the delays in appointing a Conservative Party chairman was because they were going to do uh, an excessive amount of due diligence, given all the problems that they had had. You don't need to do any due diligence to know the sort of guy that Lee Anderson is and what a loose cannon he can be. And if you're going to appoint him as a counterbalance to the kind of smooth and creamy London MP that is Greg Hans, who is the actual chairman and does have a cabinet post as such, then perhaps not a counterbalance that's so heavy that it pigs Greg Hans out into the kind of stratosphere I mean, look, extraordinary stuff. Look, the other thing to, to to say about this is we all sit here and roll our eyes, but there are huge swathes of the public right. that will 100% exactly. agree with Lee Anderson and will be applauding every single thing he said, no matter how much we all sit here with our Westminster bubble-smelling
4: thoughts. So does he need managed? Because I've kind of teed this discussion up as managing characters within the party, or is this the exact reason that he has been given a title... Uh, that sort of bumps up his recognition.
2: It's a good reason why he has been given a post. There are great big chunks of the of the country that will think, yeah, this man's talking common sense. Yeah. Good on him for saying what other people are too scared to say. You know, there's a battle looming for the Red Wall seats, and I don't want to make uh, a lazy assumption about all the political views of the Red Wall seats, but... Outside of Westminster, there is a vast diversity of opinion and it doesn't look like, most of the time, it doesn't look like our kind of consensus views that we tend to have the three of us sat here or most of the people that, you know, you would know or bump along with in the Westminster bubble. It it just doesn't. I mm. am reminded of a I When I was a journalist, I went to do an interview with uh, a backbench MP who was very much like uh, Lee Anderson. He had views that i don't share and he would tell anybody them anytime you wanted to ask him he would uh he would talk about stuff and we got into a discussion about gay rights spoiler alert he didn't think there should be any and he said something about children and i said well you know what makes you think uh, same-sex couples can't have children and he looked at me like I'd just sort of said some alien concept to him. He said, what do you mean they can have children? And I said, well, I don't want to get into the, you know, but same-sex couples can have children. Um, and we got into a. It was the, I was a journalist. I wasn't, like, my, my most professional interviewer, I'll grant you, but we got into kind of a stand-up row. Mm-hmm. And when I left, he rang up my editor and he said, don't you ever send that home county's pinko lesbian to talk to me ever again. Oh my word! And I Christy. was I was a bit upset by the home counties bit. I thought that was a bit harsh. But um, <laughs> but but you know, Lee Anderson is of that mould. You know, he's never hid his uh, views under a bushel. So you know, you can only assume he was appointed to do ex- and say exactly those sorts of things.
4: Exactly, and so that's you know that is... Frankie that's, looks I know, so disgusted. Right I hear Frankie's well, engine well. revving, but I do. That is that is the thing that I'm very aware of is that I will sit happily and criticise. When politicians don't say anything because I hate it I think it's awful I think you should say things because I think you you that is your job that you should have views and you should be fighting for things part of me I can't I can't be disgusted when Lee Anderson says the things that he thinks Frankie
3: all right okay I'll, I'll put it out I can and I am disgusted also just a flag I mean look I'm the child of two lesbians so when I hear stories like that, it makes me want to cry. Mm. Because growing up throughout my life, I faced extreme homophobic abuse from people just like that. So I'm sorry, those kind of opinions aren't okay in the 21st century. And what I would counter is there are plenty of people in the Red Wall who were probably lesbians themselves. And I say that as someone who was brought up in Manchester and then moved to North Yorkshire. Both the kind of seats where people like Lee Anderson are apparently trying to appeal to. So they're not just a homogenous body. And as a trade unionist, I spend a lot of time with people who I think in Westminster people would assume that someone like Lee Anderson would appeal to, you know, working-class people, you know, salt of the earth, often white, and they don't want to bring the death penalty back. They're not homophobic. They don't have what I would consider to be pretty racist attitudes towards migrants. So I think on the flip, Kirsty, I'll just pick it up and say that I think that there is also a danger that we go too far the other way, which is just give a big seal of approval to what I think are the wrong opinions and not acceptable opinions of a politician like Lee Anderson because we're worried that it will impact our electability in the Red Wall and other places. I think as politicians we have a duty to ensure that people are brought on an educational journey, which is that if you're brought up in a homophobic household or you're brought up in a racist household, the whole point of civil society and politicians alike is that we work constructively with communities to try and get people out of those what I would consider to be really harmful. And dangerous mindsets. So, someone like Lee Anderson, you know, being paid all of this money and behaving like he's Mr. Working Class Salt of the Earth, and therefore gets a pass for saying some really unacceptable things. But, he, but he's not getting West a pass, we, though. He's not getting I a pass, he is, is he? Getting well, a
4: pass. well, from whom though? Because we're talking about it today and saying that the, you know these are things like, around the death penalty and the sort of language being used about small boat arrivals, etc. These are the sorts of things that do provoke criticism, focus, attention, spotlight. It's not a free pass by any stretch.
3: I think it's the sense of a free pass by uh, sort of accepting that, oh, this is, you know, it's a wing of the Conservative Party, therefore, you know, he is still appealing to people. I think we have to call it out and it has to be challenged.
4: Do you dispute, though, that what he is saying will be represented by some people in the population? Yeah, of course it will be
3: represented by some people in the population. You know, loads of people in the public have bad... Opinions, You know, some people go out and murder, so therefore there are some people in the population that are murderers, but that doesn't mean that, therefore, it deserves a policy platform in Westminster.
2: I think I have to <laughs> pull up equating people that think the death penalty should become come back as uh, w- with murderers. Look...
3: I'm know- not equating it, I'm just saying that if we use the arguments that there are people out there that have the same opinion, it doesn't mean that, therefore, we should... Uh, allow space for people to express opinions like personally i think if you're saying that you think the death penalty should be brought back like you know many human rights organizations campaign against countries like saudi arabia for having the death penalty and rightly in the uk government we condemn that so then if you've got the deputy chairman of the conservative party saying like yeah let's bring back the death penalty can you not see why that's problem.
2: Uh, Well, I can also see why trying to police what people say, uh, provided that it doesn't provide uh, incitement to racial hatred or abuse, um, uh, has an equal problem. We live in a free uh, society with freedom of speech. Lee Anderson has the right to offend you, and offend you he has, and offend me he has. But that is his right to do that. And as a journalist, I would die in a ditch to defend his right to say bellendery things like he has. It's not my view, it's not your view, but it is a view sh- shared by probably millions of people in this country, and he has a right in a, in a functioning liberal democracy to say that, as long as we don't cross over a line where that becomes incitement to hatred. Is it offensive? Not disputing that. Personally, find it... Some of what he said, quite offensive. Some of it, I just, it kind of makes me smile. I don't agree with any of his position, mm. but I absolutely agree with his rights to, to have that position.
4: And just to add some context on the death penalty discussion, uh, polling from YouGov from the end of March 2022, uh, Britons don't tend to support the death penalty until you name the worst crimes. Uh, one survey shows that four in 10 Britons support the death penalty, Half uh, opposed, 10% unsure. Conservative voters are much more likely to support the death penalty, 58% support. Uh, Labour voters, 23% support. Britons aged over 65, more than twice as likely as those aged tw- uh, 18 to 24 to back the death penalty, 54% to
3: 22%. Time will tell about how Lee Anderson gets on as deputy chairman, but I think it's really going to bite the Conservative Party.
4: Yeah. And does... It- on the broader theme, so away from the specifics, does he does somebody like this need managed by, right, by the political like party
3: machine? <laughs>
2: bottom line: someone like this can't be managed. Right. Yeah, and that that's kind of the point. Uh, one party conference where I think I might have got the specificity of this wrong, so forgive me. But I think uh, Cameron had done some dance around the television set huggy thing with Jamie Oliver about you know healthy meals or what have you and Boris had gone and waved a load of burgers around at a school or something, something like that anyway so he turned up at conference never wanted to, to, to let his prime minister take the light and he was absolutely mobbed you know absolutely mobbed by journalists absolutely mobbed by delegates Uh, You know, he was the closest thing the Conservative Party had to a rock star. It was completely unmanageable then. It turns out he was completely unmanageable (coughs) as a prime minister and will continue to be completely uh, unmanageable. But I think we'll come to a very sorry state of affairs as a country if we demand such identical opinions of our politicians that we lose all but the most kind of vanilla people mm. with the cleanest of backgrounds. Politicians are supposed to be representative of the society that's that they serve and that comes in a great diversity of opinions and I think we walk down a very dangerous path when we declare with certainty that some people's opinions are wrong. You can call them offensive, but I think if you that you find them offensive, but I think if you start to say that they are wrong, uh, I think you end up in a society where you run the risk of alienating great swathes of the public. And, you know, that is some of why things like Brexit happen, because people just get fed up of being told that they are wrong, that they are racist, that they are small minded, small Englanders that, you know, when they believe that they have perfectly justifiable concerns about the state of the nation.
3: In terms of how you manage a personality like Lee Anderson, I think Kirsty's right. I don't think you can manage someone like that. But I do think that you have to be careful about what people say in interviews. And I think it shows a bit of a lack of discipline, which is that, you know, unless I missed a memo that said the Conservative Party wanted to bring back the death penalty, that is kind of a bit of a breakaway from party policy and no doubt will have caused a media headline that Rishi Sunak felt he could do without. There is just
2: one other point to make, though, about the small boat. Po- I mean, look, the the death penalty thing. I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure that there was a moment where Rishi Sunak slapped his head into his hands when he heard that one. But, but you know, number ten distances itself from us, and the and the Sharabang moves on, right? But I think the small boats point is a is a separate one. You know, there are five government priorities under Rishi Sunak's government called the people's priorities. They are born out of I can guarantee you 10 tons of polling and focus groups, uh, which are all about public attitudes. And small boats isn't in there by mistake. It's in there because it is a uh, concern of the majority of people in polling. Yeah
4: that is very interesting discussion on which we will leave this week's episode thank you both thank you kirsty thank you frankie we will be back next thursday in your feed make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast make sure you join our mailing list as well to do that just go to whitehallsources.com sources.com forward slash mailing list and you can share your thoughts as well on all that we've discussed today you can email anytime hello at whitehall and if you're feeling very generous then why not? Why not share a link to this episode with someone you know. Go for it, I dare you. I d- do it now. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.